right, 1 Samuel chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning, 1 Samuel 4. And uh, we're going to be looking at uh, this account of uh, kind of a, really a sad day, a kind of a turning point in the nation of Israel uh, here in this period of the judges where the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of God is actually taken from them. And uh, 1 Samuel 4, we're going to just begin reading in verse number 1. We'll look at the first couple of verses here. It says, And the word of Samuel came out or came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they had joined battle... Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. So we see a couple of things happening here. First of all, the, the chapter starts out with this statement that the word, <clears throat> excuse me, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. If you remember, uh, last week as we looked into chapter 3, the, the, the Bible tells us that uh, the Lord began to exalt him. Uh, in the eyes of the people, he was not allowing his words to fall to the ground. In other words, everything that Samuel was saying was coming to pass. It was obvious and evident that the hand of the Lord was upon him. Well, now his word has come to all Israel. All of Israel, all of God's people now are recognizing that this young man is anointed of God. This kind of reminds me of what we saw happen, uh, if you remember, uh, back in... Uh, Exodus and, and, and Numbers there, and, and then the beginning of, uh, of the book of Joshua. As Moses passed off the scene, there was a young man kind of waiting in the wings uh, to become the next leader over Israel, Joshua. And the, the thing that the Bible says about him is that the Lord exalted him in the eyes of the people. That, that there was something that the Lord did in his life that made it clear and obvious to everyone, this is the man that God has anointed to lead us. And that was something that the Lord did. Well, that's what's happening now with Samuel. Uh, the, the people of Israel are able to recognize that this man has God's hand on him. And, and he's the one that we're supposed to follow. And then we read where they go to battle against the Philistines. They put the battle in array. Uh, they, they pitch one, one against another. And when they go to battle, uh, they were defeated. Uh, 4,000 of them were killed. And so, if you notice there, um, by the way, letter A, under number one there, it's the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Um, and then uh, Samuel's words were being heard and respected throughout Israel. But now, the Philistines have defeated Israel. They went out to, uh, against them, and Israel was defeated and lost about 4,000 men. And so, notice what the, the Israelites decide to do. They go to battle against the Philistines, and 4,000 of them die. And the first thing that comes to their mind is... God must not be pleased with us. Well, that's, that's a, a fair enough assessment. It says, when the people were come, verse 3, when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? So they, they recognized that it was God that was not blessing them. That was the reason that they had uh, lost that battle. Then they said, let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may, may save us out of the hand of our enemies. So isn't this interesting that they, 
they now are, are calling for the Ark of the Covenant. They said, we need to go get the Ark of the Covenant. Well, what was that? That was a, a piece of furniture that was uh, really symbolic of God's presence among the nation of Israel, right? That Ark of the Covenant was, was kind of the centerpiece of, uh, uh, of the tabernacle. And it was, that, it was in that most holy place. No one could enter in there except the high priest once a year could go in there. But there was a process and ceremony that had to take place before he could enter into, in there. And this was the symbol of God's presence among them. So they get this bright idea. They think, hey, if God's not pleased with us, then maybe what we need to do is go and get the Ark of the Covenant. And if we bring his presence with us into battle, then he kind of is obligated, right, to deliver us. Isn't it interesting that they, they recognize that God wasn't pleased with them because he had smitten them, and yet rather than seeking God's face or deciding to change their ways, they said, well, let's just bring the Ark of the Covenant. And, and that was really what, what they did. They, they weren't necessarily interested in, in, in seeking God, okay, Lord, what have we done wrong? And let us change, that's your next blank, to change their ways. Let us make the, the, the conscious effort to be right with you and find out what's going on. Instead of that, they say, well, let's just, let, let's just bring our, uh, our good luck charm. And, uh, and, and then God has to bless us. And it, it's fascinating to me when you consider that, that they felt that the Ark of the Covenant was going to save them. Number three, this reveals a twisted confidence in a piece of furniture rather than trusting in the Lord. They weren't trusting in God to deliver them. They were simply trusting in their relic, in that piece of furniture. Uh, think of it this way. We have God in our box. And we're going to bring our God box into battle, and therefore God has to bless us. Isn't it amazing how often we think that God just ought to or needs to uh, bless everything that we put our hand to if we will simply, you know, include him in on it. And, and so often even our prayers are that way. Lord, I'm going to do this. Please bless it. Rather than saying, Lord, what would you have me to do? And, and allowing him to lead the way. When my family and I spent uh, the better part of a year in... Liberia, West Africa. Liberia is a very spiritually confused place. Um, the people there, probably 90% of them would tell you that they're Christians. Most of them go to a church of some kind. Most of them are false churches and, and, and are not preaching the truth. But they kind of have this mentality that by that God will bless them if they, what they would say, if they honor him. But when they say that they're going to honor him, that doesn't mean that they're going to do things that are pleasing in his sight. It literally just means that they're going to give lip service to him. So you can drive down the road there in Liberia and find probably, you know, 60 to 70% of the businesses there will have some uh, re religious type of name. Um, God's blessings provision shop, uh, you know, Jesus way such and such. I mean, it's just, and, and in all, you'll see it on the back of taxi cabs and everything. 
uh, God's got my back and all these different things. And they really think that simply by putting God's name on things, that that means that God is going to bless it. The problem is, when you look at it, their, their business practices, and I'm not, I, it might sound like I'm painting with a broad brush. This is by far the rule. Their business practices are very underhanded and shady. They don't trust each other. I've had a multitude of Liberians tell me, you can't trust a Liberian. This is the Liberian people, and they're talking about themselves. And I've even asked them, you mean even you? Yeah, even me, you can't trust me. I mean, they'll, they'll tell you that. There's, they have this way about them, and even just part of their culture and their manner is very, very much, it's, it, 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 there's a willingness to deceive and to try and get ahead and I understand some of the reason for that. They're very poor people, and, and, and they really do struggle even just to put food on the table. I'm not trying to uh, besmirch them or say, say bad things about them, but just the reality. You know, you would think, if my thought is, I want God to bless me, maybe what I ought to do is try and align my life and business practices in a, in a way that he would want to bless that, instead of just putting his name on something and expecting that he has to. But that's kind of what they were doing here in Israel, wasn't it? They took the Ark of the Covenant and they said, well, okay, we're going to bring this into battle and God's going to have to bless us. So verse number four, so the people went to Shiloh that they might bring from thence the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth rang again. And so here they are. They're worshiping essentially not the God of the ark, but simply the ark of God. They're, they are worshiping the symbol of God's presence rather than the Lord himself. Number four, this misguided trust can be seen in religions who see some special blessings associated with relics, statues, crosses, etc. You see that stuff, don't you? This idea that, well, I've got the, you know, I've got the cross or I've got a rosary hanging from my, my mirror and, and uh, as though it's some kind of a good luck charm. Uh, hold your place here in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and go with me to 2 Kings chapter 18, if you would. 2 Kings 18. And I want you to notice this. In fact, <clears throat> I just read this this past week and it was, I was just reminded of this again. 2 Kings 18. And uh, let's look at verse um, number 4. This is speaking of Hezekiah, the righteous king over Israel. It says, he, re he removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves. Now, if you know anything about the history of Israel... One of the things that the Lord had commanded them was that they wouldn't make any graven images to bow down to. They had done that. He had commanded them that they were to worship in, in a particular manner, in a particular place, uh, before the, you know, the temple, before the presence of the Lord, but they hadn't done that. They had set up these high places, these various places around the country, uh, in, under trees and things where they would have altars, kind of a, a place of convenience to worship, if you would. And so that was one of, the, one of the things that the Lord continually reminded them of was that that was a, a sign of their rebellion. 
And often, even good kings, it would say of them that he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, howbeit the high places were not taken away. Like that was always kind of a, a you know, something that, well, this is, this is one thing that he should have done that he didn't do. Hezekiah, though, he, God got a hold of his heart, and he said, we're cutting down the groves, we're breaking down these images, we're going to do what's right in the sight of the Lord. Notice, though, it says, and he, he break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. Now, who told Moses to make a serpent of brass? God did. That, that, was, that was a way by which God spared his people, and it was a powerful uh, tool Everyone who looked upon that was delivered from the physical death that the, the serpent bites brought, right? And Jesus himself in John chapter 3 said that that was a picture or a type of Christ. That everyone who looked on that serpent on, on the pole would be saved in the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. He said, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And if we'll look to him... For our salvation will be saved, right? And so it was a powerful picture. So why would Hezekiah break this thing in pieces and destroy it? Because, listen to this, For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it. And he called it Nehushtan. In other words, the reason that that had to be destroyed was because the, the children of Israel had allowed something that God designed for good. They allowed it to become an idol and began to worship it. And so Hezekiah had to come in and actually destroy it because they were, they were worshiping the serpent rather than the God who saved them. I don't know why that is, but that's apparently a problem that we're all accustomed to. Uh, we, we have the ability, for instance, I think even we need to be careful... And we come into a place like this and, and a building like this. And for, for many of you, this building holds some special um, memories of God's working in, in your life. And, and, and we, we, we think of our traditions that we have even and, and kind of hold them in high regard. There's nothing wrong with that. However, when we become more concerned with our traditions and the familiarity and the building, the place and our manner in worship, then we are about the object of our worship, God himself. Something is wrong. We're actually exalting a means by which we, we worship God to the, the level of God himself. And anytime you exalt something to the level of God, you not only are taking... Uh, that particular item and putting it out of order, but you're actually bringing God down to the level of things that are made with man's hands. And that's, that was never what God intended. But that's exactly what they were doing with the Ark of the Covenant. That symbol of God's presence had become to them a replacement for God himself. We ought never to allow... The means by which we worship God, the manner in which we worship God, to be exalted to the level of God himself. He is the object. He is the one that we are worshiping. So this is not unlike number five, the confidence Judah placed in Moses' brazen serpent in the days of Hezekiah. Now, 
Letter D, Hophni and Phinehas, these were Eli's sons, escorted the ark to the battlefront. And this revered uh, piece of furniture brought jubilation to Israel. Remember, when it came into the camp, they shouted uh, loudly. They cried out with joy. And then verse number 6, And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the ark of the Lord was come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God is come into the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing heretofore. So even, even the Philistines are afraid of this because they think that God has come into the camp. Why? Well, these are pagan people. Their concept of gods were idols, things that were fashioned by man's hands. So to them, this was God coming into the camp. But obviously we know that wasn't true. Number two there, what a lack of discernment they had. Israel was shouting at the side of the ark when God was not even with them. The Philistines were afraid. But let's look down in verse number nine. It says, be strong and quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that ye be not servants unto the Hebrews as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. And the Philistines fought and Israel was smitten. And they fled every man into his tent, and there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. Israel had been defeated, 4,000 men had died. Now, even with the Ark of the Covenant, 30,000 of them died. Why? Well, because God wasn't blessing their idolatry. Verse 11, and the Ark of God was taken. The ark of God was taken. The, the, the symbol of the presence of God was taken from Israel. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. And I hate to say it, but that's probably the only good that came out of that day, was that the wicked sons of Eli were killed there. Verse 12, there ran a man of Benjamin out of the army and came to Shiloh that day with his clothes rent and with earth upon his head. And when he came, lo, Eli sat upon a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. I, I find it fascinating here that Eli, who was the high priest, he, he was in charge of the ark of the covenant. I mean, they couldn't take the ark without his permission. Or at least him allowing them to do that. But he apparently let him take it. Or, but in his own mind, he knew this wasn't a good idea. Because he sat there waiting to hear his heart trembled. He was worried about this thing. Eli's heart, letter, or number one under letter H, Eli's heart was troubled about the ark of God. But this just goes to show it's another reminder that Eli was a man who knew what was right but didn't have the backbone to stop things, to put, a, to put his foot down. He didn't have the backbone to stand up to his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and say, you're being wicked and I'm not going to allow this to continue. He didn't have the backbone to put a stop to them taking the Ark of the Covenant into battle. He knew it was a bad idea, but he did nothing about it. So the only thing he can do is sit there worried and fearful about what's going to happen. 
And at 98 years old, his heart trembled for the ark of the God, uh, for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the noise of the crying, he said, What meaneth the noise of this tumult? And the man came in hastily and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were dim that he could not see. And the man said unto Eli, I am, him that, I am he that came out of the army, and I fled today out of the army. And he said, What is there done, my son? And the messenger answered and said, Israel is fled from before the Philistines, and there hath been also a great slaughter among the people. And thy two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God is taken. And it came to pass when he made mention of the ark of God that he fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck brake, and he died, for he was an old man and heavy. And he had judged Israel 40 years. So here is a tragic end to Eli's ministry as the high priest. His wicked sons have not only defied God and defiled Israel, but they now have lost the Ark of the Covenant. He allowed that to happen. They have both been killed. And when all of this news comes to him, he falls over, and because of his age and weight and all of those things, he breaks his neck and he dies. What a tragic end to this story for Eli. And so, the uh, number four there, the news of the ark being captured caused Eli to fall backward, breaking his neck. And then we read in verse number 19, And his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child, near to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed, for her pains came upon her. So she went into labor. And about the time of her death, the women that stood by her said unto her, Fear not, for thou hast borne a son. But she answered not, neither did she regard it. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory is departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. So here she names her son Ichabod, which literally means no glory. She <clears throat> has this child and she says that the glory is departed from Israel because the ark of God, that, that symbol of the presence of the Lord, was gone. In reality... The glory of God was not the ark of God, but the God of the ark. And that's what we've been talking about this morning. However, the glory had departed a long ago because God wasn't in their wicked works that they were doing. But this was just a reminder that the glory had departed from them. They were trusting in the ark to give them victory when God was withholding his blessing and judging them for their disobedience. Actually, the glory of God was not departing. God had withdrawn his power and blessing from a disobedient people, but would soon show his glory through the captured ark. Israel was treating the ark like it was a good luck charm. Eli's sons were attempting to use the ark of God to bring them blessing, yet they were not interested in repenting of their wickedness. There was no desire in the hearts of Hophni and Phinehas to get things right with God. Hey, God's not pleased with us. What do we need to do? 
oh, let's just bring our God box and he'll have to bless us rather than saying, Lord, forgive us for sinning against you. We want your blessing. We want to be right with you. So some principles and life lessons here. Living in defeat should be a trigger to ask ourselves if there's something wrong spiritually, something between us and God. If it seems that things aren't, that God's not blessing, it seems like the Lord's just not answering you. If it seems like you're just living in a constant state of defeat, at some point you need to, to kind of have a wake-up call and say, okay, Lord, what's wrong? Is there something between me and you? I love the book of Job. One of the reasons I love the book of Job is because all the things he's going through, he's willing to look upward and say, Lord, I can't see anything in my life that would have brought this on. But if it's there, would you please show me? Maybe there's something I missed. Now, we understand God had a bigger purpose in all of that, and we've read the, the end of that book, and we, we recognize that God had a bigger picture at play there. But Job was wise enough to say, okay, Lord, what's, what's wrong? Is something wrong in my heart or in my life that's not pleasing to you? Letter B, it's possible for our faith to be misplaced, trusting more in men and methods than in the Lord. Eli and his sons, the elders of Israel, demonstrated great confidence in the ark while exhibiting no trust in God. And then lastly, there are no substitutes for sincere repentance and genuine faith. That's kind of what we've mentioned here several times now. All right, so a couple of, uh, I guess, thought-provoking questions here. What do you think would cause someone, as in the case of Eli's sons, to think that doing some religious act would automatically bring God's blessing? What, what do you think that is that would cause people... To think, if I do something religious, that God will bless me. Any thoughts? Yes, ma'am. Okay, just an unwillingness to admit, really, his disobedience. Okay, yeah? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. you know, grace, the grace of God is kind of a two-edged sword when you think about it. On one hand, we're really thankful for it because we realize that we need it. On the other hand, it's kind of a humbling thing because we have to admit that we can't do it ourselves. And so having that ability to say, well, I'm going to go ahead and do this thing and then God's going to bless me, really what that does is it kind of puts the ball back in my court, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. And I mean, this, this really comes back to even that idea of a works-based salvation, doesn't it? That, you know, I understand what the gospel's all about. I understand what Jesus did for us. But, you know, overall, I'm 
pretty good person. I go to church. I've done these things. So God will accept that, right? Well, no, because that's not what he said. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so often I think we've, we've, we've replaced God's will and purpose and, and commandments, we've replaced them with man's understanding. Why, why is it that, that, um, that men tend toward idolatry? Exodus. As soon as they come out of Egypt and Moses is up there on the mount, they make a golden calf, an Aaron. These be thy gods, O Israel. This morning in the morning message, we're going to be looking at Jeroboam's altar that he made, really two separate altars that he made, golden calves. Why, why is that? Because we like things that are tangible that can be understood. So here's a golden calf, something that I can, this is representative of my God, and I'm going to bow down to this. We like things that are tangible. We don't like this concept of faith, because faith isn't tangible, is it? It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We like to live by our sight, by our understanding. So here's the idea. Here's our God box. This will give us victory. Instead of saying, Lord... What's wrong here that we can get right with you? Uh, let's uh, kind of move ahead to um, letter C there. Incidents like the defeat at the hand of the Philistines, which we think are calamities, may be used by God for his glory. Uh, the point here being the Lord was going to be glorified one way or the other either by his people, that would have been his first choice, right? For Israel to be what they were to be, they were supposed to be a light to the rest of the world. But since they refused to be that light, now he was going to get glory not in their success, but actually in their failure. Can you think of other examples in the Bible where the Lord may use even... The, even bad situations to, to show his glory to the world. Yes, ma'am. That's exactly right. I mean, that was, that was the whole, really the whole point of the Babylonian captivity, right? It wasn't just for Israel to be punished, but really because they had forsaken the Lord and, and they weren't being the light that they were supposed to be. Now God says, okay, I'm going to bring you into Babylon. But even there in Babylon, he was being exalted and, and using a few key individuals to do that. Daniel would be one and his three friends, but obviously even... Guys like uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and those who were faithful uh, during that time period that the Lord used even to take the heathens and to show them the reality of, of the God that was supposed to be the God of the Hebrews. And really, I would, Brother Crane, did you have input there? 
absolutely, absolutely. Um, where to those who, who've rejected biblical truth, the crucifixion looked like a defeat, didn't it? But in his resurrection, there was victory. And even today, you understand the, the, the reason that the gospel has come to us as Gentile people is because the Jews rejected it. And so God said, okay, I'm going to provoke you to jealousy by a people which were not a people. That's us. And, uh, and so the Lord does this. And, and, and the reality is that man cannot overthrow God's purposes. We might try, we might even, uh, you know, it may even appear that way for a time. But the truth is that God is going to be honored and glorified one way or the other. And, uh, and really the, the only control we have is whether or not we're going to be on the winning side of that or on the losing side. You know, if we, if we go about things our own way, we're going to be on the wrong side of that when the time comes that the Lord is glorified. Um, but anyway, we need to stop there. There's some other thoughts for you to consider uh, along the way here. And uh, I'd encourage you to maybe take some time this week and, and read through this. And then also read the next chapter, chapter 5, uh, because of course next week we're going to get into that. All right, let's have a word of prayer.